This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. At 11 a.m. on the morning of November 24th, 1963, 51-year-old Dorothy Kilgallen sat in the living room of her Manhattan townhouse watching television. Two days earlier, the president of the United States, John F. Kennedy, had been assassinated. His suspected killer... U.S. Marine Lee Harvey Oswald. Kilgallen and millions of other Americans clung to their TV sets. Oswald was now being transported from the Dallas police headquarters to a more secure facility. Cameras flashed as reporters crowded around to document the most hated man in America. At 11.21 a.m., a Dallas nightclub owner named Jack Ruby emerged from the crowd. He had a loaded 38 caliber revolver pointed at Oswald's abdomen. Before anyone could stop him, he shot. The bullet pierced nearly every major organ in Oswald's abdominal cavity. The crowd of police and media personnel erupted into chaos. Though she was watching from more than 1,500 miles away, Dorothy Kilgallen felt moved to join the ranks of those reporters. The next year of her life would be spent investigating the mysterious circumstances surrounding John F. Kennedy's death. On November 8, 1965, almost exactly two years later, in the exact same Manhattan townhouse, Dorothy Kilgallen was found dead. Allegedly, she died of a lethal mixture of alcohol and barbiturates. Maybe she did pour herself one too many cocktails and take one too many pills. Or maybe that's exactly what her murderers want you to believe. Maybe she died because she knew too much. 
Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a ParCast original. Every Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Conspiracy Theories for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our first episode on Dorothy Kilgallen, an American journalist and television personality who was investigating the assassination of President John F. Kennedy until she was suddenly found dead. This week, we'll examine Kilgallen's career and rise to fame. We'll also cover her untimely death and the resulting investigation. Though official reports say that Kilgallen was killed by her own vices, a lethal mixture of alcohol and barbiturates, not everyone is so convinced. Next week, we'll cover the conspiracy theories about Dorothy Kilgallen's death. Some skeptics believe that the CIA murdered Kilgallen in order to bury information that she discovered about JFK's assassination. Still others trace her death to another famous figure and American icon, the crooner and notorious womanizer Frank Sinatra. Dorothy Kilgallen was born in Chicago on July 3, 1913. Her love for theater and entertainment began early. At just 15 months old, she appeared in a local production of One Thing After Another. By the time she was in middle school, Dorothy was writing, directing, and acting in plays with her friends. Dorothy's father, Jim Kilgallen, was a journalist. In 1920, when Dorothy was just seven, he was hired by the International News Service as a traveling reporter. By the time Dorothy was nine, the family settled in Brooklyn. Jim Kilgallen was quite the successful reporter. Over the course of his long career, he had the opportunity to interview Al Capone and Thomas Edison. He exposed the horrors at Dachau prison camp while working as a correspondent during World War II, and covered the trials of accused Soviet spies Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, as well as the McCarthy hearings. His work often took him away from his daughters, but he made up for his absence with gifts from the likes of John Rockefeller and actor Rudolph Valentino. The stories of his travels charmed and captivated Dorothy. When she grew up, she knew she wanted to follow in her father's footsteps. By the age of 12... Dorothy was writing letters to editors of newspapers. One was addressed to the Brooklyn Eagle. The paper had criticized one of her favorite actors, the Mexican-born Ramon Navarro, and she wanted to express her grievances. The editor was so impressed with the criticism that they published her letter, not knowing how young she was. 
Though Dorothy was always an excellent writer and voracious reader, she wasn't always a good student. Despite the occasional flunked class, however, she became the associate editor of her high school newspaper, The Erasmian. After graduating high school, Dorothy continued her journalistic pursuits at the College of New Rochelle in New York. She didn't stay long. In June of 1931, after only two semesters, Dorothy got the chance to work at the New York Evening Journal. A two-week trial was set up, in large part as a favor to her father. He knew the editor, a man named Amater Spiro. Dorothy worked tirelessly to prove herself. After her two weeks were up, she was offered a full-time job and she opted not to return to school. She was not yet 18. Dorothy was interested in stories about society, entertainment, politics, and crime. But being so young and new, Dorothy was given the scraps that were considered undesirable by her fellow journalists. So she began inserting herself into her co-workers' fieldwork anytime they were covering something interesting. She wanted to learn and was eager to prove it. It's important to mention that it was the 1930s and she was a woman in a male-dominated field. She knew it would take more than hard work to get the recognition she wanted. Dorothy allegedly rewrote an article of one of her male co-workers without signing her name. It was only after the rewrite was praised in a meeting that Dorothy shot her hand in the air and claimed it as her own. It was her way of making a statement. She was going to be taken seriously. Around this time, true crime stories became a staple in newspapers. Its popularity drove sales, so Dorothy was assigned to cover her first murder trial. A Bronx woman was charged with poisoning her husband by lacing his chocolate pudding with arsenic. In her defense, he'd allegedly cheated on her. Regardless of who was guilty of what, the salacious story became Dorothy's first major headline. Soon after, when she was 21, she landed on the front page thanks to the Anna Antonio murder trial. Antonio, an Italian woman from the Bronx, was accused of paying a hitman to kill her husband in order to collect his life insurance policy. Part of what made Dorothy's coverage so good was that she took the time to study the legal system. Aside from her knack for storytelling, she made sure she was writing from a position of knowledge and authority. She went on to cover more major trials, including the 1935 trial that members of the media called the Trial of the Century. Bruno Hauptmann was charged with kidnapping and murdering the son of aviator Charles Lindbergh. Dorothy followed every turn in the case. Next, the New York Evening Journal assigned Dorothy to a new column. It was titled The Hollywood Scene, and it marked a dramatic shift in her career. The Hollywood Scene was meant to be a serious look into the entertainment industry. And just as she began covering the world of the stars, she took a step into the spotlight herself. In 1936, Dorothy became a participant in a new competition called The Race Around the World. Three journalists were challenged to compete to circumnavigate the globe the fastest, using only transportation available to the public. 
It was the original Amazing Race. It was set up by the National Aeronautic Association as a way to display the power of air travel to the average traveler through daily columns in three different newspapers. The other journalists were Leo Kieran from the New York Times and Herbert R. Eakins from the World Telegram. Ultimately, Dorothy placed second after Eakins, but the 23-year-old managed to turn her first flirtation with celebrity into a career opportunity. She published a collection of her daily installments into a book titled Girl Around the World, and she inspired and co-wrote the 1937 film Fly Away Baby, starring Glenda Farrell as a character based on Dorothy. Capitalizing on the attention, Dorothy decided to dabble in acting. She was cast in the film Sinner Take All, directed by Errol Taggart and starring Bruce Cabot. Apparently, her performance was good enough to land her a screen test for another Hollywood film, The Reporter. Louis Sobel, with the journal American, described Dorothy's entrance into the entertainment industry. She was slender, wide-eyed, deceivingly naive in attitude, and soft-spoken mannerisms, and began mingling with a new set of characters. Racket guys, grafters, phonies, creep janes, society fops, chorus girls, pimps, overdressed Jezebels, and their rent payers. It was a new world. A dangerous world filled with crime, drugs, and sex. She was, at once, a participant and an observer. Her life intricately connected to the ones she covered in Hollywood scene. And as her reporting continued, her assignments became more and more like her father's had been, traveling around the world, rubbing elbows with the rich and famous. In 1937, the same year that Fly Away Baby was released, Dorothy covered the wedding of Franklin Delano Roosevelt Jr. to Ethel DuPont and the coronation of George VI in England. She started to attend high-profile events in London and New York. Well, then, in December, an announcement appeared in newspapers across the country. Dorothy Kilgallen's new column, The Voice of Broadway, would be starting soon. It would cover the various scandals and misdeeds happening in and around the entertainment industry in New York. The announcement said that it was a man's job, but that Dorothy had already been doing a man's job for years and doing it better. Her competition was all men. Walter Winchell, Ed Sullivan, Lucius Beebe, and Leonard Lyons all wrote columns on similar subjects. But Dorothy had risen to bigger challenges. Within weeks, the column was a hit. At its peak, it was syndicated in roughly 200 American newspapers. In one of her earliest pieces, she wrote about a 29-year-old Broadway star named Richard Colmer. Colmer allegedly had thrown a holiday party where his guests were asked to dress up in children's costumes. The odd humor intrigued 26-year-old Dorothy. On November 14, 1939, the two met at the Algonquin Hotel in Manhattan, ostensibly to discuss jazz. After only six dates, they were engaged. A few months later, on April 5, 1940, the couple married. Among the many high-profile guests were Broadway and film stars Ethel Merman, Walter Houston, Tyrone Power, and Milton Berle. 
Despite tradition, Dorothy Kilgallen kept her last name. She'd already built a brand around it, and she had no intention of sacrificing her career for marriage. The newlyweds moved to Park Avenue and shortly after had their first two children. Through these years, Dorothy not only continued to write her Voice of Broadway column, but she started and hosted two nationally broadcast radio programs covering entertainment and interviewing Broadway stars. By 1946, when she was 35, Dorothy Kilgallen was dubbed the First Lady of Broadway. Then, in 1947, she received a call that would change her life and drag her further into the public eye. She was asked to be a panelist on the hit CBS game show, What's My Line? It was a chance to transition from being a star in certain circles to becoming a household name. Dorothy said yes. Coming up... The bold attitude that made Dorothy famous begins to earn her powerful enemies, including the CIA. Now, back to the story. Dorothy Kilgallen was shattering glass ceilings before the term was even invented. The host, reporter, and author of the Voice of Broadway column and radio program had become a celebrity by 1947. She was making television appearances on shows like Leave It to the Girls. Then she was invited to be a rotating panelist on the hit game show, What's My Line? The concept of the program was pretty simple. Each week, she and other panelists would question unknown celebrity contestants about their careers. The goal was to be able to guess the celebrity's identity. Dorothy was known for being a tough questioner. She treated contestants much like a prosecutor would treat a witness, and it worked. America fell even more in love with Dorothy Kilgallen. What's My Line went on to win multiple Emmys. At its peak, its audience reached 25 million viewers. The celebrity contestants included Groucho Marx, Walt Disney, John Wayne, and Elizabeth Taylor. But Dorothy never lost her journalistic itch or integrity. In July 1950, a right-wing media journal called Counterattack released an anti-communist pamphlet titled Red Channels, the report of communist influence in radio and television. They listed the names of 151 actors, writers, musicians, and journalists, claiming they were manipulating the industry with their communist agenda. Dorothy wasn't among the accused, but many of her friends were. She used her column to fight back. She denounced the blacklist as slander. Dorothy knew all too well the power the media held over public opinion, and she wouldn't stand by and allow fiction to be presented as fact. It was not the first, and certainly not the last time, that her writing took on a politically divisive tone. That same year, she attacked the United States government-funded program Radio Free Europe. Their alleged purpose was to broadcast free news programming to Eastern Europe. Dorothy, however, publicly wondered whether a more subversive group like the CIA was using the broadcast to advance a very specific agenda. She also claimed that she had proof. 
And suddenly, in the blink of an eye, an entertainment reporter and television personality from New York drew the attention of the largest intelligence agency in the world. CIA agents reached out to her, demanding to know who her sources were. But Dorothy refused to give them names. She told them she had every right to protect their identity, and the CIA documented her uncooperative behavior. As Dorothy caught the attention of the CIA, her husband, Richard Calmer, was apparently catching the attention of other women. When she found out, Dorothy made a statement by showing up to public events with male friends of her own. One of those friends was What's My Line producer, Bob Bach. Bach was from Westchester, New York. He'd gone to school with Joseph and John Kennedy. Though they never met at the time, Dorothy was one degree of separation from the future president of the United States. Bach wasn't Dorothy's only flirtation. Beginning in 1952, Dorothy took an extramarital interest in singer Johnny Ray and began hanging around New York clubs like the Copacabana. She shared the space with powerful men, men that she would eventually anger, like Frank Sinatra, J. Edgar Hoover, and mob boss Frank Costello. In 1953, she was asked to cover the marriage of John F. Kennedy to Jacqueline Bouvier and the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. Her stories earned her a Pulitzer Prize nomination. By 1954, 41-year-old Dorothy Kilgallen had nothing left to prove. She was no longer her father's daughter, her husband's wife, or a woman in a man's world. She was Dorothy Kilgallen. She was unquestionably a star. As such, she had the freedom to reprioritize her life. She loved her life and the lifestyle it afforded, but she longed to cover more interesting stories. She wanted to return to crime, politics, and law. She wanted drama. She had no plans on ending her celebrity column. She just wanted the front page as well. In October 1954, Dorothy Kilgallen merely informed her editors of her intentions, and they put her on one of the most sensationalized criminal cases of all time, the murder trial of Dr. Sam Shepard. Earlier that year, American neurosurgeon Dr. Sam Shepard and his wife, Marilyn Reese Shepard, had been hosting friends at their lake house on Lake Erie. As the night wore on, the friends decided to watch a movie. But Dr. Shepard couldn't keep his eyes open. He fell asleep on a daybed in the living room. As the night ended, Marilyn quietly ushered their guests out and wished them farewell. They drove away, watching 28944 Lake Drive disappear into the distance. Sam Shepard was asleep, and Marilyn Shepard was alive. According to Dr. Shepard, he was still asleep when he heard his wife scream. He leapt from the daybed and rushed to the bedroom. But when he arrived, he barely made out the figure of a bushy-haired man before he was knocked unconscious. When he came to, minutes later, the intruder was still in his house. Shepard chased the man out of the house and down to the beach, 
where he was once again knocked unconscious. There were no other witnesses until just before 6 a.m. when Shepard frantically called his neighbor asking for help. When the neighbor arrived, they found Shepard shirtless and his pants stained with blood. The police arrived shortly to find a grisly display. Marilyn was in bed, dead. She'd been bludgeoned to death by a sharp object. Blood covered the walls and droplets were found throughout the house. Sam's story was extremely suspicious. There were items missing from the house that were later found in the backyard, in a bag hidden by bushes. Their seven-year-old son, Sam Reese Shepard, had slept through everything. Their dog never made a sound to alert anyone of the intruder's arrival. All the evidence pointed to Shepard as the killer. The media coverage of the story was unlike anything ever seen before. It not only influenced public opinion, but it allegedly affected the investigation as well. A federal judge called the case a trial by newspaper. The United States Supreme Court described it as a carnival atmosphere, and Dorothy Kilgallen was in the circus's center ring. Local papers ran provocative headlines and articles filled with unsubstantiated claims implicating Dr. Shepard. One headline from the Cleveland Press read, Why isn't Sam Shepard in jail? The sensationalism was inescapable and made it near impossible for a fair trial and an unbiased jury. Despite everything, the trial began in October 1954. When Dorothy Kilgallen arrived in the small Cleveland courtroom, she was far from inconspicuous. A reporter for the Hearst Syndicate, Bob Considine, wrote, Dorothy's daily arrivals were not unlike the arrival at home plate of Mickey Mantle with the bases filled. All she wanted was to do her job, but the jury, judge, defense attorney, prosecution, and warring families of the accused murderer and the deceased all seemed to be straining to get her autograph. Dorothy enjoyed her celebrity, but she never wanted it to interfere with her work. She tried her best to focus. She sat through the entirety of the nine-week trial and critically examined every aspect of the case. She had serious doubts about Dr. Shepard's guilt. But on December 21st, 1954, the jury found Dr. Shepard guilty of the murder. Dorothy wrote, The prosecutors of the state of Ohio did not prove Dr. Shepard was guilty, any more than they proved there were pinheaded men on Mars. This was the first time I have ever seen what I believe to be miscarriage of justice in a murder case. It is the first time I have ever been scared of the justice system, and I mean scared. Part of what scared her so much was the media's effect on the case, not to mention a comment made by the judge. Allegedly, the Honorable Edward J. Blythen had told Dorothy at a party that he'd believed that Dr. Shepard was guilty before the jury was even selected. It was a clear indication of bias that, of course, affected the outcome of the trial. And Dorothy didn't shy away from pointing out the miscarriage of justice. Her outspokenness wasn't exactly popular. Hurt by her criticism, local papers in Ohio canceled her column. It didn't matter, though. 
she vehemently spoke out against anything and everything that she considered wrong and a threat to justice. She later helped Shepard's lawyers file a habeas corpus petition, essentially a request to be released from prison based on an unlawful conviction. It was granted. Well, later, Dr. Shepard was retried and acquitted, but by that time, Dorothy Kilgallen wasn't alive to see justice served. Coming up, Dorothy Kilgallen makes an enemy out of Frank Sinatra. Now, back to the story. In 1956, 43-year-old Dorothy Kilgallen was juggling journalism, radio, television, an unfaithful husband, public affairs, and being a mother. Her outspoken nature and incisive questioning won her admirers both on the Emmy-winning program What's My Line and in her career as a journalist. But on more than one occasion, Dorothy's unrelenting quest for the truth created enemies. In 1956, she published a series of articles titled The Real Frank Sinatra Story. Each detailed his romances and his notorious mistreatment of starlets in Hollywood. She wrote, The struggling dolls of show business, pretty and small-waisted, starlets who never got past first base in Hollywood, assorted models and vocalists, and chorus girls now lost in the ghosts of floor shows past. In turn, Sinatra began publicly attacking Dorothy. He called her chinless and said that she looked like a chipmunk. Allegedly, Dorothy once visited a New York club wearing sunglasses and holding a coffee cup. When Frank Sinatra walked by, he dropped a dollar bill in her cup, later commenting, I always figured she was blind. Things escalated. Dorothy began detailing Sinatra's mafia connections, specifically with gangster Sam Giancana and crime boss Mickey Cohen. She threw parties for Hollywood's elite, where Judy Garland sang for the guests, but Sinatra was always left off the list. He always appeared in her column, however. And she minced no words. Success hasn't changed Frank Sinatra. When he was unappreciated and obscure, he was hot-tempered, egotistical, extravagant, and moody. Now that he is rich and famous, with the world on a string and sapphires in his cufflinks, He is still hot-tempered, egotistical, extravagant, and moody. She was a powerful woman making enemies out of powerful men with powerful connections, and her list only got longer. In 1959, she weighed in on the incredibly divisive Cold War. In Cuba, communist politician and revolutionary Fidel Castro had helped overthrow the government and then declared himself prime minister of the new communist state. In the process, he and his fellow revolutionaries killed thousands of Cuban citizens. Dorothy became an outspoken critic of Castro's leadership. She flew to Miami to interview Cuban exiles who'd fled their country for fear of their lives. She wanted to give them a voice and a platform, and to enlighten Americans on the tragedies their Cuban neighbors faced. And while doing so, she implicated the State Department and the CIA in Cuba's ongoing turmoil. In July 1959, 
Dorothy Kilgallen wrote an exclusive, claiming that the State Department was spreading false information. She cited sources who told her that the CIA, along with organized crime groups, might be teaming up to try and assassinate Fidel Castro. She was the first journalist to make such a claim, but others followed in her footsteps. Dorothy had already angered the CIA once. She'd already spoken out against Frank Sinatra and his mafia affiliations, called those men out by name. Now, she was implicating both the CIA and the mafia at the same time. Not long after the articles were published, Dorothy's lover, Johnny Ray, was arrested. He was accused of soliciting sex with men. But Dorothy swore that it was a setup, maybe even by the institutions she had angered. She took to her column in order to proclaim his innocence. Happily for her, he was acquitted. Even with the negative attention and scandals in her life, 47-year-old Dorothy was awarded a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. She was also offered a publishing deal. Random House asked her to write a book on all of the murder cases she'd covered in the past. And it was while Dorothy was writing a book on murder that John F. Kennedy re-entered her life. September 26, 1960, millions of Americans tuned in to watch John F. Kennedy debate Richard Nixon. It was a turning point for Kennedy's campaign, and afterward, in her column, Dorothy predicted his win. She continued to report on John F. Kennedy's rising star. Interestingly enough, she did so while also covering the career of the young, beautiful actress Marilyn Monroe. It wasn't long before her beats would intersect. But first, Dorothy decided she wanted to meet President Kennedy, so she did. She pulled some strings with her friend, Presidential Press Secretary Pierre Salinger, and arranged to meet him along with her eight-year-old son, Carrie. Kennedy was charming. He gave Carrie White House souvenirs and read letters his classmates wrote in school. Dorothy watched her president, never imagining how intricately connected their lives would become. On August 3rd, 1962, Kilgallen exposed a relationship between Marilyn Monroe and, as she wrote, a Kennedy. In the article, Dorothy explained, Monroe has proved vastly alluring to a handsome gentleman who is a bigger name than Joe DiMaggio in his heyday. And then, two days later, in a striking coincidence, Marilyn Monroe was dead. She was found in her bed by her maid, Eunice Murray. The door to the bedroom had been locked and the lights were on. Murray became worried around 3 a.m. and called the police a few hours later. Two different doctors were called to the scene. They officially ruled that she died from an overdose of barbiturates, which she used to ward off insomnia. Frequent listeners may recall our episodes on Marilyn Monroe's suspicious death. We found that many of the details don't entirely line up, and they didn't line up to Dorothy Kilgallen either. Kilgallen was suspicious of the report. She didn't understand why Marilyn's door was locked when she didn't typically lock it. If it was an accidental overdose and she was trying to use the pills to sleep, why were the lights on? Why were two doctors called? Why was the woman who was supposedly Monroe's housekeeper worried at 3 a.m. 
but the police weren't contacted until 6. Dorothy wrote, The real story hasn't been told, not by a long shot. Even today, there are those that believe that Dorothy was right. Marilyn Monroe was murdered. And Monroe was just the first of many suspicious deaths piling up around Dorothy, culminating with her own. The next victim, President John F. Kennedy. On November 22, 1963, Kennedy and his wife, Jacqueline Bouvier, were driving through Dallas, Texas. They were sitting in the back seat of a presidential motorcade when suddenly Kennedy was shot. One bullet entered the back of his neck and exited his throat. The other shattered the right side of his skull. Roughly 40 minutes later, CBS's Walter Cronkite delivered the news to the nation. The president of the United States had been pronounced dead. The alleged shooter's name was Lee Harvey Oswald. The motivation was unknown, but Oswald quickly became one of the most hated men in America. The public wanted to see justice served, and they wanted it fast. And then... Two days later, on November 24, 1963, Lee Harvey Oswald was shot and killed by Jack Ruby. Oswald's motives weren't ever learned, and democratic justice could never be served. It was another suspicious murder without a clear motivation. But even as Dorothy grieved the loss of the President of the United States, the seeds of suspicion crept into her mind. Her journalistic instincts sprang into action. She had so many questions. Why was Ruby able to kill Oswald so quickly after his arrest? With so many police around, how was Ruby able to get so close? Dorothy didn't allow herself to rest before she began gathering information. On November 26, 1963, J. Edgar Hoover, the first-ever director of the FBI, wrote a press release stating, Not a shred of evidence has been developed to link any other person in a conspiracy with Oswald to assassinate President Kennedy. But the statement came so quickly, seemingly before any thorough review of the facts. From Dorothy's perspective, it appeared that the government was trying to shut down investigations before they began. Oswald's killer, Ruby, had the answers that might make these murders make sense. But when Dorothy asked to interview him, she was denied. Their explanation? He was crazy. Crazy was too convenient an answer for Dorothy. On November 29, 1963, only five days after Oswald's assassination, Dorothy Kilgallen wrote a column titled, The Oswald File Must Not Close. Why? In her words, Justice is a big rug. When you pull it out from under one man, a lot of others fall too. Dorothy Kilgallen stood for justice, even in the face of unspeakable odds. So she didn't care about J. Edgar Hoover or the CIA or even the mafia. She'd lost a friend, President Kennedy, and she wanted to know why. In late 1963, one of the most famous criminal reporters of the time was about to launch a full-time investigation into the assassinations of John F. Kennedy and Lee Harvey Oswald. Naturally, any guilty parties had reason to be concerned. 
She spent the next two years digging. Dorothy Kilgallen's investigation continued up until the very last moments of her life, until she was found dead in her apartment on November 8, 1965. The cause of death was a lethal combination of alcohol and barbiturates. She was found by her maid. If it sounds familiar, it's because her death shares a striking amount of similarities with Marilyn Monroe's. Did Dorothy die from her own vices? Not everyone is so convinced. Skeptics believe that there was foul play surrounding Kilgallen's death. Their conspiracy theory is the first and only that we'll discuss next week. Dorothy Kilgallen was murdered by members of the CIA and or the mafia because of information she discovered during her investigation of JFK and Lee Harvey Oswald's assassinations. Next week, we'll take a detailed look into Dorothy's investigation and examine which, if any, of her many enemies might have been pushed to murder. Was it the CIA, Sinatra's hitman, or a true accident? Marilyn Monroe, JFK, Lee Harvey Oswald, a string of victims surrounded by mystery and convenient circumstances. Then came Dorothy Kilgallen and her questions. What did she find out? Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. You especially might want to check out our past Conspiracy Theory episodes on JFK's assassination and Marilyn Monroe's death. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Conspiracy Theories, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Conspiracy Theories on Spotify, just open the app, tap browse, and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Connor Sampson with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. 